On December 17th, 1994, 27-year-old Alison Botha had spent most of the day soaking up the sun with friends at the beach in her hometown of Port Elizabeth, South Africa. So obviously, remember, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's winter in December. We're all snuggled up and cosy in our blankets. But for those in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the middle of summer, total beach weather. When it started to get late, she invited everyone back to her apartment to hang out, eat pizza, play some games, just carry on the good times rolling. At the end of the night, her friends had gradually started leaving and heading home. Now, the area that she lived in was nice, but definitely not a safe place for anyone to walk the streets after dark. So Alison, being the lovely friend that she was, offered rides to those who didn't have a car. It's what friends do, right? But it would be a kind gesture that would change her life forever. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan, and it is good to be back. When I tell you to buckle up, now I know I say that pretty often, but this time I mean fully strap yourself in and be prepared to have your jaw hit the ground multiple times. You have never heard a case like this before. So Alison finished dropping her friends back to their places and arrived back at her apartment complex alone just after around 3am. So obviously it's now December 18th, but super early in the morning. As she pulled up, she was actually a bit annoyed because someone had taken her usual parking space right in front of the building. Looking around, her choices were pretty limited, so she was forced to park in a spot that was actually further away than she would have liked, especially for that time of the night. Grabbing her stuff, ready to get out of the car and go inside, before she even knew what was happening, someone else had opened the driver's side door. And before she had time to react to that, she felt the blade of a knife to her throat and a man's voice telling her to slide into the passenger seat and to keep quiet or he would kill her there and then. Now, none of us know what we would do in a situation like this, and we'd like to think that we'd fight or try and get out of the passenger side door or, or anything, right? But there's also a lot of us who would think the way Alison did. She did exactly what he told her to do, in the hopes that this knife-wielding stranger would release her completely unharmed if she cooperated. As they drove off into the darkness, away from the safety of her apartment, he told her that his name was Clinton and that he didn't want to hurt her. He simply wanted to borrow her car for an hour or so. He promised that he would let her go as long as she behaved. And let's be honest, hindsight is a wonderful thing. We could sit here very easily and think, OK, but if he just wanted her car, then he could have just waited for her to go inside of her apartment and then just steal it. He didn't need her to be in the vehicle with him. But with adrenaline pumping through her veins and probably never having been in the presence of pure evil before, Alison believed him. Pulling into a side street, Clinton, as she knew him, stopped the car, but not to let Alison go free as he promised. Instead, an even more threatening presence, shall we say, got into the back seat, and Alison actually caught a glimpse of him in the rearview mirror and there and then knew that she was in trouble. 
Clinton had at least pretended to kind of be cordial to her up until that point, whereas his partner now simply looked on at her like a predator, just inspecting his prey, waiting for the perfect moment to pounce. They came to a final stop on the outskirts of the city in a super remote area, dragging Alison out of the car and throwing her onto the ground, onto actually piles of broken glass and just general debris. Now, Clinton was definitely cut differently from his partner because almost like he was asking her about the most mundane things and just being totally normal, he told her that he was about to rape her and then asked her if she was planning on fighting back. Now, I I honestly don't know what's worse, being ambushed or having a conversation about it. Again, Alison wanted to believe that he'd make good on his promise and let her go. So she promised him that she would cooperate if it meant seeing her family again. She figured if she could just close her eyes and make it through the rape, she'd be okay. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy with her response, Clinton sexually assaulted a terrified Allison in every way imaginable. Now, I'm not sure what he would have done had she said that, yeah, actually, I'm going to fight you with every ounce of my being, but that's just my random thought. She didn't, and we move on. The ordeal over, I'm sure Alison must have sighed with relief, except, again, rather than letting her go, when he was finished, he handed her over to his accomplice. Again, she braced herself with what was about to come. But instead of viciously raping her in the same way as Clinton had done, he was also simultaneously choking her, causing her to drift in and out of consciousness, which, frankly... I feel like it's a bit of a blessing because being raped once, horrific, but then back to back immediately being raped again, even more viciously, I just, it doesn't even bear thinking about. Now you might think if things weren't already dire and humiliating and traumatizing because of how vicious these rapes were, Alison actually lost control of her bodily functions, like that's how bad these rapes were. 
and it caused her to completely empty her bowels spontaneously, like she had no control whatsoever. Now, what might seem like another horrific thing for her to endure, this natural reflex actually may have saved her life. So I just want you to hold that thought. Now, these guys weren't rookies, okay? They had actually been arrested on rape charges in the past. So why the heck were they on the streets? But obviously, they were back out in the streets and they didn't want the same thing happening. So they had decided in advance that the only way to avoid jail time or possible jail time would be to make sure that any of their future victims couldn't go to the police. With the sexual assault portion over, they then took turns stabbing Alison in the stomach over and over. Like these guys really had a hatred for women. And one of the reasons that they were stabbing her in her abdomen was essentially to ruin her lady parts, you know, her organs that could reproduce. By the time they were done, she had received 37 wounds to her midriff. And prepare yourself, okay? They were so bad and so many that they'd actually caused her intestines to fall out and literally spill onto the ground. Okay, so this next part of the case is where you will continually need to pick your jaw up from the ground. And when I tell you doing this research had me shook, I am not kidding. Like, I'm sure you're thinking right now, Alison has to be dead, right? Okay, they have stabbed her 37 times. Her guts are actually on the ground. She's got to be dead. So her wannabe killers are thinking the same and they're stood around chatting and admiring their handiwork when suddenly they were shocked to realise that their victim was still breathing. So in an attempt to finish the job, one of them knelt over her and sliced her throat 16 times. 16 times. Despite these insane injuries, Alison was actually aware of his hand moving back and forth in front of her face as he slashed her so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. I can't even wrap my head around this. I mean, oh, I just like, I need a moment even just recounting this to you guys. It's like, oh, okay. All those stabs to the stomach and now 16 times across the throat. And she was aware that it was happening. So at this point, they are certain that she is well and truly dead. And she has got to be, surely. So the two men drop all pretenses and as they climbed back into Alison's car to go back to the city, they forget themselves. They call each other by their proper names. So if your jaw is even back up, get ready for it to drop again, okay? Because as the headlights of her car disappeared into the night, in what can only be described as a freaking miracle... Alison had regained consciousness. But not only does she regain consciousness laying there, broken, discarded, in the middle of nowhere, literally skinned open, she traced a farewell note in the sand beside her with her finger. She needed to let her mum know just one last time that she loved her. And not just that, she needed whoever found her body to know the first names of the men who were responsible for her death. Yes, you heard me. Alison had been regaining consciousness as the men had gotten into her car. 
she traced the names Franz and Theans into the sand. Now, at that point, I think she'd be forgiven for taking the easy option of just laying there and waiting for the inevitable to happen. Like her actual guts are outside of her body. But if you haven't figured it out already, Alison is one heck of a woman and she wasn't ready to give up on life just yet. So the choice is to get help fast or the choice to live would be taken out of her hands. Now, at this point, I'm not even sure if she is human because this incredible woman attempts to pick herself up and try to walk to wherever help may be. But as she goes to kind of like lift herself up, she realised that she couldn't actually see. And it was only when she put her hands to her face that she realised that the muscles in her neck had almost been completely cut through, making it impossible for her to hold her head upright. Like I'm talking hanging on by a literal thread, guys. If she let go, it would flop backwards. So in those initial seconds, she's processing and coming to terms with just how severe her injuries are. Or so she thinks, because then she felt something wet around her ankles. She manages to sit up and hold her head, literally hold her head in place so that she could look down. And that's when she sees what we all know is that her intestines are bunched up at her feet. As I said, when I was researching this case, I wanted to cry, throw up, black out, just everything at just the thought of the situation she was in. I was legitimately holding my breath, reading and writing these notes. A fantastic day at the beach, an evening with friends, never in your actual wildest nightmares could you imagine yourself being in what she finds herself in now. So surely she's going to just lay down and accept her fate. She's traced their names in the sand. She's been able to kind of say to her mum that she loves her. But no, absolutely not. She is determined to make it to safety or at least die trying. Completely naked, covered head to toe in blood, Alison had to figure out a way to kind of put her body back together before she could even attempt moving any further. Feeling around, she discovered that Franz and Theans had actually left her clothes near her. So she used her shirt to create a like makeshift sling to carry her now outside innards. So she held that precious bundle with one hand and used the other hand to hold her head in place. So kind of more or less intact, she now started crawling pretty much to try and find help. I don't know if it was sheer willpower, divine intervention or what, but despite being off the beaten track, she managed to make it to the highway. Now, spoiler alert, this does have a happy ending. She would later say that she felt as if she'd been carried by a force that she couldn't see or explain. But that spoiler alert being said, we aren't done and we are certainly not done with picking up our jaws just yet. Now, let's not forget this is in the middle of the night, so traffic is basically non-existent. Having made it this far, though, Alison held out hope that her saviour would find her. And that is the understatement of the century. Against all odds, she got her wish. No longer able to carry on, Alison had actually just collapsed in the middle of the road. She was on the white lines that separate the two lanes of the road and just lay there, her life rapidly slipping away. At that moment, she saw headlights approaching in the distance. Except, don't get too excited. When the car reached her, the driver slowed down, took a look at her and sped off without even a backward glance. 
Moments later though, she did hear another car coming towards her. And this time, instead of passing her by, it stopped. Her guardian angel had arrived. Tian Illard, a 20-year-old veterinary student from Johannesburg, had last minute decided to take the scenic route home with a group of friends, meaning that they drove past exactly where Alison had collapsed, and that is not their usual way home. And thank goodness they did, because unlike the first car, they didn't even hesitate in stopping. While Tian's friend called for an ambulance, Tian knelt down and gently slotted Alison's protruding trachea back in place. Like when I said her head was literally being held on by a thread, I wasn't kidding. And I guess when she'd collapsed onto the ground, her windpipe had kind of come out from under the skin. He then covered her with his shirt before taking hold of her hand and reassuring her that help was on the way. Like he knew he could not let her fall asleep or dip out of consciousness. He needed to keep awake. So he held her hand and just talked to her nonstop. Okay, jaw-dropping time again because the universe seemed determined to kill her that night. It took the ambulance over 45 minutes to make what is only a 15-minute drive. Now, this is just purely me. This is nothing in any research, but I need rational reasons why. And I'm thinking that maybe Tian's friend had described Alison's injuries so that paramedics probably figured that they would be picking up a corpse. So not really any need to rush. But when they finally did arrive on the scene, their stunned reactions said it all. Yes, she was still alive, barely, but absolutely no way did she have any chance of actually surviving this. Now, emergency room doctors got to work straight away, shocked that she had sustained more injuries than a body could ever normally make it through. And thank heavens they were good doctors, because despite how bad it looked, she had a pulse, and they believed that where there was life, there was hope. Yes, 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 yes. Amen. So they did everything they had in them to bring her back from the brink of death. Washing her intestines in saline solution and any tears repaired before being placed back in her body, they then repaired her neck. Now thankfully any major arteries and her voice box had been missed so doctors were able to sew her neck injuries without too many problems. Tian had followed first responders to the hospital and stayed close by until Alison was stabilised. And I don't think there is any other human on earth that can be called a knight in shining armour as much as him after what he did. The doctors noted down that she had over 50 stab wounds, but miraculously not one of them had hit an artery or a vital organ. So you know that thought that I told you to hold on to? The one where not only did they strip her of her, all of her dignity by raping her and discarding her like trash, but she then involuntarily emptied her bowels in the middle of them assaulting and strangling her. And I said that that had probably saved her life, and it did. Because she'd completely emptied herself out, her abdominal cavity hadn't turned septic. Remember, it's a cavity because her innards had literally fallen out. And even though covered in dirt and debris, her gaping wounds had shown no signs of infection. Now, if that is not just a living miracle, I don't know what is. Now, we know that Tian had put her windpipe back into place, but they did have to insert a tube to help her breathe as the damage was huge. But she was breathing and essentially out of danger. So much so that only hours after the attack, she was actually strong enough for detectives to bring in a book filled with photos of potential suspects. She picked out Franz Dutois 
and Theon's Kruger as her attackers. She then shared everything she remembered of the night's events. Now, obviously, she wasn't able to speak, so she provided police with a written account, including those monsters' names. Now, this frustrated me, but I guess if you're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's means that they would be off the streets, then so be it. But when her statement was given to prosecutors, prosecutors actually asked that her doctor remove the tube from her windpipe so that she could actually verbalise the names. They explained that in their experience, spoken words have far more impact at trials than writings on a piece of paper. And she is a freaking force to be reckoned with, so of course she agreed and so did her doctor. With the tube removed, she smiled and out loud said the names of the two men who had done everything in their power to take her life. Armed with that, detectives raced to look for the men. And as I said earlier, because of their previous run-ins with the law, they weren't hard to find. Franz Dutois was 26 years old, and are you ready? He was a husband and a father with a criminal history that included violent attacks on women. Now, while he had been accused of rape on multiple occasions, he had gotten off every single time with a slap on the wrist. And it was notoriously known in those days that the South African justice system didn't really take rape accusations seriously. And also another reason, which frankly I'm convinced of, is because of the fact that his dad was a police officer. Along with his reputation as a sex offender, Franz was also an arsonist, going back to when he was a teenager and had set fire to a school. His wife was a self-proclaimed dark witch, and after getting romantically involved with her, he allegedly declared himself a disciple of Satan. He'd got that right, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, because he is just pure evil. The other man, well I say man, boy, was 19-year-old Theans Kruger, who was basically trouble on legs, the polar opposite of how Franz had been raised. He'd grown up living hand-to-mouth in an allegedly abusive household. His father, unlike Franz's dad, was on the other side of the law. He was a career criminal who had been in and out of prison throughout pretty much all of Theans' childhood. The only similarity between Alison's attackers was that they both dabbled in Satanism. Now, Franz had always fancied himself as a ladies' man. Theans knew that with no looks nor intellect, most women actually found him repulsive. And stung by the constant rejection, he had grown to hate the opposite sex almost as much as he wanted them sexually as well. He was completely and utterly conflicted. So they bring the two men in, and when Franz begins to be interrogated by police about what happened to Alison, he had assumed that he was being questioned about a murder. So you can imagine the shock of finding out that she had very much survived. It had him rolling over and singing like a canary. Knowing that authorities had him banged to rights, Franz handed over a ring caked in blood that he said had belonged to Alison and he'd taken off her what he thought was her dead body. And frankly, that was almost as good as any guilty plea because it was completely and utterly caked in her blood still. Now, even though Alison had picked out the two men from photos, as soon as she was strong enough, she was asked to pick them out of a lineup. And this is actually quite cool. Her case was the first in the history of the South African legal system where a one-way mirror was used to protect a victim from having to come actually like face-to-face with their alleged attackers. And I love that for her. The men had tried to alter their appearances, but Alison easily pointed out both Franz and Theans. Their faces had been burned into her memory. 
As you can imagine, this case was huge in the media because she'd survived against all odds, literally all odds. And the media dubbed the pair the Ripper Rapists. They were charged with kidnapping, rape and attempted murder. And we've all been around long enough to know that practically every case I cover, the perpetrator tries some sort of shenanigans. And Franz was no exception. Not long after being taken into custody, he announced that he was possessed by a demon and in need of an exorcism. Just insert eye roll here, please. But he was humoured and an exorcist came and performed the ritual. Whether it worked or not, was true or not, didn't matter. The jury had not an ounce of sympathy for him. The trial began on June 12th, 1995, and it was so graphic and horrific that before the first day was even over, one of the defence lawyers quit. Detective Melvin Humpel, who had headed the investigation, didn't hold back when it was his turn to testify, going as far as to say that every day of the trial, he was hoping that they would try and make a run for it so that he could shoot them dead and give them the punishment they deserved. I mean, I don't blame him. I really don't blame him. But I guess Franz and Theans took him at his word because they acted like model prisoners every single day of the trial. Two prior victims also took the stand and recounted the horrors that they had endured at the hands of these two men. Both testified that they'd been warned by their attackers not to go to police or they'd be killed. They said they'd promised to keep the rapes to themselves. But one of the women, who was heavily pregnant at the time of her assault, that doesn't bear thinking about, had gone straight to authorities the second they let her go. Both were arrested and both were back out on the streets before the ink on their warrants was even dry. And this is exactly why so many women don't report rapes. They just get accused of crying wolf, the men get let go, whatever. But I'm not going to go down on that tangent today. A third woman who had narrowly escaped being a victim herself testified that she had been driving around looking for a parking space at around 12.30am on December the 16th, 1994, which was two days before Alison was abducted. When she said that she noticed two scary looking men watching her. As she pulled into an open space, she realised that the men were moving pretty fast towards her, and thank goodness she did, because her survival instincts kicked in. She'd stayed put, locked the doors, and just sat there, basically. When they realised that she wasn't going to get out, and they weren't going to get in, they fled. The reason that she was actually there testifying was because her blood had run cold when she recognised their faces from the news reports of Alison's brutal assault and attempted murder. So just going back to the first two women who had been raped by Franz and Theans, you can see now that when they attacked Alison, they had both decided that this time we need to kind of just kill any future victims. Because yes, they had been let go each time, but I guess if there's too much of the same thing being said about you, mud is going to stick eventually, right? Two months later, on August the 7th, the court came back with its verdict. Guilty on all charges. Halla freaking Lulia. The judge sentenced both Franz and Theans to life in prison, and he was so appalled by their callousness and a lack of humanity that he actually took an unprecedented step of including a caveat to their sentence. He wanted it to be written in their files that the two never again be allowed to see the light of day. So although it wasn't going to be legally binding, he just wanted to have that down in writing that throughout everything that they'd all heard in the trial, that, okay, these men had been given a life sentence, but please do not ever let them out of prison. 
Every few years, as per South African law, the two would be eligible for parole. So initially when they were sentenced, they it was life without parole. But I think it was a couple of years after they'd been in prison, the law actually changed and it was backdated to anyone that had been sentenced to life in prison without parole. So what it did mean was that Yes, they'd been given a life sentence, but every few years they would be able to go up against the parole board. And every single time they did. But every single time the board wisely chose to keep them locked up for everyone's sake, especially as neither of them had ever shown even an ounce of remorse for their attack on Alison. The end. <laughs> oh, how I wish. In July of 2023, Franz and Theans went again up in front of the parole board and this time after only serving 28 years behind bars, they were released. Okay, I'm going to give you a second because you probably need to process this as much as I needed to when I read that. I must have read the line about them being granted parole just about 100 times because I was I kept thinking I wasn't reading it correctly, but no. They really, really were. And even though, like we said, the judge in Alison's case had specifically advised that they never be released, because it wasn't legally binding and it was only a recommendation, the parole board decided, for whatever reason, that these men had done their time. And after a 90-day period of being allowed only out during the daytime, so they didn't just kind of literally throw them straight out into the wild, there was 90 days where they were only allowed out during the day and then they had to come back to prison to sleep and eat, whatever, I guess. But after that 90 days, they were freed on a permanent basis. Now, their release agreement does state that they are to be closely monitored for the rest of their lives. and I really do just hope and pray with everything that I have that that is going to be enough to keep them from reoffending. But, you know, call me cynical. I'm not convinced. As you can imagine, Alison was said to be devastated by this shocking twist, and understandably so. And I would just love to know what they said to the parole board that would allow two basically remorseless rapists and would-be killers to re-enter society. It actually hurts and boggles my mind. I don't want to end on that note, though. So instead, let's finish by talking about this incredible woman. As far as I'm concerned, she is the definition of survivor. Her recovery was one that doctors described as nothing short of miraculous. And Alison was released from the hospital after only three weeks, with obviously a long road of rehab ahead of her as an outpatient. While Franz and Theans were behind bars where they belonged, Alison began the process of taking back her life. Initially, and so, so understandably, she fell into a dark depression for quite some time. But like the badass that she is, she pulled herself out of that pit and realised that she had a story that needed to be told. Instead of letting her attackers take more from her than they already had, she decided to use what she had learned from her experiences to help others, which actually worked wonders for her own emotional healing. And in one interview, she said that, that night, she had chosen life over death. So to allow herself to stay in a dark depression and not see anyone or talk to anybody was really not the choice that she had made that night. She may as well have died. She met the man of her dreams, married and became a mother to two sons. 
which was actually another victory because shockingly during the questioning, and I did mention this earlier, the men had admitted that they had deliberately tried to destroy her female organs. But once again, her strength and determination had won out over their just unspeakable acts of cruelty. In 2016, a book came out called I Have a Life, Alison's Journey as Told to Marianne Pham. And later that year, a documentary about her near-fatal attack and the aftermath was produced. The film was simply called Alison, and I believe it's available on Amazon Prime. I know I said I wanted to focus on Alison as we wrap up, but just to show you how unthinkable it is that they had been released. When Franz got wind that a film was being made about the case, he had offered to be interviewed, but only if Alison submitted a handwritten letter of forgiveness in advance. And that's not all. He also asked for a share of the proceeds from the documentary and the book, as well as a cut of any earnings Alison received from her speaking engagements. His warped way of thinking was, if it weren't for him, she wouldn't have had these opportunities, so he should be entitled to a share of her earnings. I mean, it beggars belief. That, yeah, I don't have the words. Honestly, I don't have the words, so yeah, just... Insert any expletive there that you'd like. All I could find was that Alison and her team had obviously refused his ridiculous demand, so he didn't get a penny. I couldn't see any more than that, so hopefully that doesn't mean he tried to sue her or anything ridiculous like that. Sadly, Detective Melvin Humpel, who, like I said, had worked Alison's case, sadly died in February of 2020 from a massive heart attack, which, after everything he'd done to bring those men to justice... I'm kind of glad that he never had to witness them being released. We mentioned earlier that Franz's dad was an active policeman during the time of the attack. Well, two years after his son's heinous crimes, Franz's father committed suicide. His career in law enforcement had been damaged beyond repair and he apparently couldn't live with the shame that his own flesh and blood had brought upon the family. Now, remember the trainee vet who had saved Alison's life on that stretch of road, Tian Elard? He was so affected by the incident and felt that he had been put on that road for a reason. So instead of treating animals, he quit vet school and enrolled in medical school, earning a medical degree and becoming a doctor. And this is how I want to end today's case. Years later, he would deliver Alison's second son. The woman that he had pulled from the clutches of death on a lonely December night, now has a far better memory to share with this incredible man. To see today's case photos, head to the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group, where you can find the link in today's case description. Until next week, stay safe. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.